Morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for for being faithful, being who you say you are. God, be with me as I proclaim your word. Would that you do work in my own heart and the heart of those who hear. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. As I was preparing this message, I got uh, two pieces of advice. One, one from my beautiful wife, Mal. Uh, she said, she comes into the office, I'm preparing, and she says, uh, babe, can I, can I give you some piece of advice? And I'm like, yeah, sure, for sure. Beware anybody that doesn't want to take advice during their sermon prepping. But um, she says, can I give you advice? I said, yeah, for sure. She said, when you teach the Bible, at least outside of, of sermons, you're very excited. You get very animated. She's like, can you try to be a little bit more animated? So uh, I'm going to do a little bit more hand gestures. And I drank some nitro cold brew. And maybe I'll be a little more excited. Uh, and then the joke was that I would go instantly into seriousness. But uh, the second piece of advice was from Muchi. He said, Kyle, I'm not going to be there on Sunday. Don't preach any heresy. I said, oh, OK, for sure. So he's not here. I could say a lot of things. But um, that was the advice. And, and no, I, I really am excited for this text. Um, it was a text I chose. But I think it pairs where, well with where we've been and then what I see um, both in our body and our culture and really what I see in my own heart. Um, so this sermon is just as much for me as it is for anybody else. Um, it's something that I've struggled really for all of my Christianity. And so, Lord, help us to work through this. Uh, this sermon is really in the, the spirit of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And that is my, my passion for, for you all in the audience. It would be that I fear if you would fail to find the rest of Jesus Christ. I would fear that if you, any of you would enter in today and leave uh, just coasting through some form of mediocre Christianity, not really delighting and enjoying Jesus as everything he says in, in the Bible, so that when you would read the Bible, it would be something foreign. It's like, I, I hear those promises, but I don't feel that. And so my heart is for you, uh, that you would find rest in Jesus today. Jesus has promised eternal life, power, and freedom for those who know him. And the thrust of our, our, our sermon today, the, the, the theme is going to be an idea of both guilt and shame. And a lot of times those terms are used interchangeably, and there is some way to use those. I don't think scripture necessarily draws a hard line between them. But culturally speaking, they're a little bit different. And uh, we're going to talk about how uh, guilt and shame can be a really crippling, crippling feature, crippling voice in the Christian walk. And so let's start with some definitions. Guilt is the idea that I have done a wrong. I've made a mistake. Guilt says, I 
had done an injustice and a justice needs to correct it. Guilt is action-oriented. I do, and, I, and what needs to fix it, something needs to happen. Shame is I am a mistake. I, 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 I am a mistake to those around me. I've lost honor. And so Western culture tends to be more guilt-oriented, uh, but that's not necessarily uh, free for everybody. Everybody, depending on their family dynamics, where they grew up and how they grew up, those voices dial up differently for each one of us, and, and sometimes at the same time. And so uh, guilt is concerned with what I do. Shame is who I am. And both of those, if we're not careful, can completely destroy and make our walk with Jesus very, very difficult. In fact, uh, it can even stop us from coming to, to Christ. And so those are the working definitions, brief overview of guilt and shame. Here's what's at stake. If we fail to identify the voices of guilt and shame in our heads, we will miss out on the joy of freedom. Like I said, you'll walk through Christianity unsatisfied, always longing for more but unable to obtain it. So that's where we're going to be in those ideas today. If you can meet me in Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I love the book of Hebrews. I think uh, Hebrews is my second favorite book. Colossians is my first, if you're curious. Um, if you don't know, the author of Hebrews is anonymous. We don't really know who uh, wrote it. And Tom is going to say it's Paul, and I'm going to disagree with him. Uh, but, but it's a really unique letter. It's the smoothest letter, in my opinion, of the entire New Testament. It actually reads like a sermon. And some have said it's a synagogue sermon. And uh, the author, in really beautiful, beautiful writing, gets Jesus and it starts to apply it to all the Old Testament in a lot of different ways. And so it's really a fulfillment thing. And by the time we arrive to chapter 10, the author has argued that Jesus is a better priest, he is a better sacrifice, he is the, the Son of God, and he is God. And that should do something for us. So there's going to be a lot of therefore conclusions drawn from that uh, in, in that way. So starting with verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow from the good things about to come, not having itself the actual image of the deed year after year by the same sacrifices which they offer continuously, was never able to complete the ones approaching. He's talking about the law. It, you see, before Jesus Christ, God, and we just came through Exodus, God gave his people a law to follow, a law that would say, hey, you are my people, I am your God, follow this and we'll be in covenant, right relationship with you, with each other. And what the author is saying now is that law was like a shadow. A shadow is unique because a shadow kind of gives you the shape of something, but it's not the actual thing, right? So if I'm outside and cast a shadow based on the sun, you can see my outline, you have an idea of what, what it's supposed to be like, but it's not the actual thing. And he's applying that to the law. The law is a promise of what could be, but not the actual tangible thing. Tracking? You still with me? So the law is the shadow of the good things that will come. It's not the actual good thing to arrive. And he says that the law... The way God told his people to live in, in that time was never able to complete the ones approaching him, the ones that would come to him. They, they would 
do all the sacrifices. They would do, try their best to, no, sometimes they didn't try their best, but they would try to, to keep the law, and it was never fulfilling. It was never making them whole. He asked a rhetorical question in verse 2. Otherwise, if it did make them whole, wouldn't they have stopped offering it because the worshipers no longer had any awareness of sins, having been cleansed once for all? And the answer to that question is, yeah, that's true. If the law, if the actions, the doing of all this activity actually made me whole, then when I have finished, I should stop. I'm whole. I'm complete now. But the sacrifices aren't that way. They're done continuously and continuously and over and over and over and over again. And, and, and today's sacrifice is good for now, but then tomorrow I'm going to mess up and I, have to, I need a new sacrifice. And it's just this continuous pattern reminding myself over and over of my shortcomings and my failures. It didn't make them whole. It didn't clean them once and for all. Verse 3, but the, by these, by these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is powerless for blood from bulls and goats to take away sins. I don't know if you're aware of this, but people in the Old Testament weren't saved by sacrificing animals. They weren't saved by killing goats and now you and God are good. That's not how it works. Salvation from the beginning of time until the end of time will always and always has been about faith in God as the one who provides atonement or sacrifice for my wrong. That God would be faithful and forgive me as I repent. But the blood and the spilling of animals was just a symbol of the reality. Again, a shadow. So then what do we draw from this? Verses 1 through 4, we, we say, Your best service and acts before God can never complete you. Although we're not necessarily in Old Testament times and we're not doing animal sacrifices, uh, I would say that it's very common for us as Christians to get into the habit of, I need to do actions to become whole. I need to do deeds to become one with God. I'm not good enough, and I just need to, to, to do activity. You might even do activity that is considered Christian or good, like coming to church. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you've come to City Group. We encourage you to come to City Group. But friends, if you are coming and doing all those things to become whole, then I think you've misplaced your, your hope. There is no activity, no action that you can take that would ever complete you, just like these sacrifices never completed the worshipers, the ones doing them. You might be stuck into a mindset that says, I need to become good enough for God to love me, for me to experience everything that God has called me to, so I just need to do activity. That would be misplaced. Verse 5 Entering into the world, Jesus says, you, and he's quoting Psalm 40, you do not desire a sacrifice and an offering, but you have prepared a body for me. In other words, it wasn't sacrifices and offerings that God wanted, it was obedience. This is what Samuel tells Saul, first king of Israel, when he starts to disobey. And Samuel's like, what good is an offering, a sacrifice to please God for sin and to give it to him if you're not even obeying in the first place? This is kind of the idea that Jesus is getting at while quoting Psalm 40 here. You don't really want a sacrifice to forgive sin in the first place. You want the actual obedience 
that should not have caused the sin in the first place. You have prepared a body for me. Verse 6. You are not pleased with a whole burnt offering and a sin offering. I know that might sound like foreign language. Those are two different types of sacrifices in the Old Testament, very common sacrifices in Leviticus. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come as it is written in the scroll concerning me to do your will, God. I've come to do and not just be forgiven. That was the, the mindset that Jesus take as, took as he came into the world, as he became human. God becoming man for man. Verse 8, he's quoting, referring back to what he just said, saying above that sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire nor are pleased, which are being offered according to the law, that having said, verse 9, behold, I have come to do your will, he's taking away the first in order that he could set up the second. Jesus Christ, by coming into the world, got rid of the old way of living through these sacrifices, through these laws, to establish a better way. A way where his people are not reminded continuously about their sins, about their shortcomings, about what they need to do. He establishes the second, the second covenant. Christianese word means this relationship, this agreement that you and God enter. Jesus Christ, by coming, has made a better way to relate to God. He says in verse 10, by which, through the will, we have been sanctified once for all through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's body. Jesus Christ's body did what obedience and, 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 and then sacrificing, excuse me, uh, for sin could not do. What my attemptive actions could not do for me Jesus Christ's sacrifice did it once for all. It sanctified the church, the believers. Verse 11, On the one hand, every priest is standing each day serving and offering often the same sacrifices which are never able to remove sins altogether. You can imagine a camp of people, of thousands of people, uh, though some might even say millions in, in terms of the exodus, uh, all bringing their sacrifices each day for the sins that they commit. So if you're a priest, you're the one that has to do it. So it's non-stop bloodshedding. It's non-stop taking this animal and putting it on an on a altar to sacrifice. It's non-stop action. It's a lot of meticulous and heavy-duty work, and it has to be done exactly as God has commanded. So he makes the distinction. He's saying that's what priests do. Verse 11, on the one hand, every priest stands... He's standing, he's working each day, serving and offering, often the same sacrifices which are never able to remove sins altogether. They don't remove sins altogether. They, 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 they just there as a reminder in verse 12. But this one, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for all time, he sat down at the right side of God. This priest by dying on the cross, a perfect life, sacrificed his body one time, and then he sat. He was done. The contrast is, is very, very starking. It's, it's, it's these priests continuously working, having to, to work, and then it's Jesus who, who did it one time for all time and sat down. It says something about the efficacy of his body. It says something of the value of his body. 
bulls and goats are not as valuable as the body of the Son of God. The blood of Jesus is a powerful, fulfilling uh, sacrifice. God was pleased with the death of Jesus. Not, never pleased, never satisfied with goats. It was sacrificed once for all, and it was sanctified the believers once and for all, and he sat down at the right side of God. That's when he ascended into heaven, he enters into heaven, triumphant, victorious, conquering, having claimed the name that belongs to him, according to chapter 1, he sits down at the right side of God. From that time, from now, what is he doing? Is he sacrificing? Is he working? No. From that time, he's waiting until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has completed forever the ones being sanctified. The idea of footstool on his feet is this idea of a king, of, of, of a warrior. When Joshua went into the promised land to conquer the people groups that were in there, uh, they would bring the leaders of those people groups, and Joshua would put his uh, foot on their, on their neck. It was an was act of submission and conquering, conquest. And that's what it's saying of Jesus Christ. He has sacrificed himself. He has sanctified a people once and for all, and now he's victorious, and he sits, and he rules, and he reigns forever, which is what we sang and what we believe. So he's waiting for the whole world to be submitted under him. For by one offering he has completed forever the ones being sanctified. Friends, brothers, sisters, Christians are made whole by the blood of Jesus. There is nothing, if you're a believer today, if you trust in Jesus, you believe the story, there is nothing lacking in you. You are complete. You are sanctified. For by one offering, he has completed forever the ones being sanctified. God looks at you as a believer and says, you and I are okay. Which is hard for some of us. Because we wake up every day with the feeling of, I've lacked in some area. I'm not as great as father as I could be. I'm not as great as mother as I could be. I'm struggling. I'm not faithful with my finances. I haven't tithed in a while. And we live in this, this, this crippling, crippling state as if God and you are not okay. Christians, believers, children of God are made whole by the blood of Jesus. You are not without, without any need of, of something. Christ in Jesus sanctified you. You're whole in His eyes. You're whole in His eyes. Do not attempt to try to sanctify yourself. You, by doing so, you, you, you're saying something about the sacrifice. You're saying something about the blood that was spilled on your behalf. You're saying it's not good enough. And we don't want to go there, right? Because all of us, if we're believers, would value and treasure that blood. Christ has completed us. Yes, there is sanctification. Yes, there is work that God is doing and ridding you of your sin and you should have victory in your sin. But as far as relating to God, you're whole. You're, you're precious. You're loved. You're complete.
verse 15. It says, but the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. He's bearing witness to us. It's a present tense. For after he has said, quoting Jeremiah now, which is after the Psalms, this is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, after the, the old system, after the way that it used to be. This is, the, this is it. I will be giving my law on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds, and I will certainly not remember their sins and lawlessness anymore. But where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. There is a way which we live where we remind ourselves of our sin. And, and, and maybe you hear that and you're going, yeah, that's the problem. That's, that's the issue. I have God's law in my mind and in my heart, and so I don't feel whole. I feel the shame. I don't feel like coming into the church because I just feel the weight of my sin. God's covenant, new covenant, is God's extension of love and intimacy. It was never meant, never meant to weigh you down. The old way weighed down. This new way was meant to free you. The law on your heart and your mind is an expression of not having to have a physical copy, but just one wholeness to God. You say, I remember my sins. I just I hold on to it. In verse 17, he says, but he doesn't. I will certainly not remember their sins and lawlessness anymore. Why are you remembering sins that God does not remember? Why are you holding yourself up and trying to make yourself whole? The God of the universe, from the moment you have been born to this very moment, who has noticed every aspect about you, every thought you've ever thought, every word you've ever said, every action you've ever taken, who, the God who, when you go to sleep, stays awake, he says, I, I remember your, your sins and lawlessness no more. The voice of shame and guilt will cripple your Christian walk. The new covenant is God's extension of love and intimacy. He wants to know you. He wants to be one with you. When you wake up thinking about your previous sin, He's waiting to meet with you. When you go to bed thinking about how you failed that day, he is eager to speak with you. There is never a moment where God is not chasing after you. Do not believe the lie. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness in the entrance of the holies by Jesus' blood, which he inaugurated for us a recent and living way through the curtain, this is to say through his flesh and a great high priest in God's house. Because we have these things, he's going to say, let's do something. He says, we have boldness in the entrance of the holiness, holies by Jesus' blood. It's not enough to weasel along as woe is me into the God's presence. No, no, it's a boldness. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus ought to give you 
Strength ought to give you strength to your bones, strength to your muscles to enter into God's presence, to go and pray for, with Him, to go and meet with Him. Boldness, confidence, your, your translation might say. Oh, that you would have boldness and confidence to meet with your God. To stretch the point, I think uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the book, uh, spoiler alert, but the book's also been out for hundreds of years, so uh, uh, in the story, the monster, if you don't know, Frankenstein's actually the one that created the monster, he's not the monster. The monster, um, after having a terrible experience in the first town he's ever met, because of the way he looks all deformed and ugly, uh, goes into the countryside, and he comes across a cabin of these three individuals, the, the Lacey family, uh, this French family, and he begins to observe them from a distance. Kind of creepy. Um, and in this family, it's an older father. He's blind, and it's his daughter and his son. And he can see at first, the, he starts to learn about what humans are and what they do, and, and he's learning and learning and learning, and he would even steal books as they're not watching to start to learn how to read and all these different things. And uh, it, he eventually gets almost infatuated with this family and thinks himself one of the members of this family, like he wants to be part of this family. And so eventually he, he, he gains the courage, the boldness, to, uh, dive, to come up with a plan. He is going to, because the father is blind, he's going to wait for the two children to leave. And on one occasion, come into the cabin and begin to, dive, to talk with this old man and see if the old man, because he doesn't, can't see him, will start to uh, accept him. And so it's a very high tension moment in the book. Uh, he, he, the monster comes into the cabin and the old man's blind. He's like, who is it? And he's like, oh, I'm a friend. I've actually been a friend for a while from the distance, but I'm worried. I'm in trouble. He's like, oh, well, why are you in trouble? He's like, I need help. I need someone to stand up for me. And he's like, well, sure. Like, but what's, what's happening? And, and, and he could hear the, the daughter and the son beginning to come. And he's like, the moment is coming where I need my, someone to stand up for me. And he's like, but, but who are you? What's your name? What's happening? And as the family comes in, they see this horrific, mutilated uh, creature, monster, and they freak out and be, immediately begin to attack. And the grandfather, or the father, excuse me, is uh, completely taken by surprise. And they kick him, they, they beat him, and he has to flee for his life. They call him all sorts of savage names. And so uh, the idea there is that I would be accepted if, if the one looking at me is blind. But God is not blind. God sees you in all of your imperfection, and he invites you. He invites you to come and meet with him. The church, as an extension of God and his family, we invite you. There is no sin under the sun that should be surprising to God nor the church, and there is no sin that should weigh you down to not give you the boldness to enter. We need boldness. We need confidence in the character of God that he loves us and will accept us. Verse 20 says, he, he, he inaugurated for us a recent and living way through a curtain. It's a new way. This is a new idea. This is the Old Test, uh, New Testament Christians, early church. 
new way through his flesh. And because we have this new way and a great, pre- great priest in God's house, excuse me, I, I, I left a point behind. The, the point of, the, the, of these passages is our boldness to God is the result of the hard work of another. Christ's work empowers us to have the boldness we need. Christ's perfection is the, the strength to our, our boldness. Because we have those two things, he says in verse 22, let us approach with true hearts in full assurance and faith, with our heart having been sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies having been washed with clean water. Let us hold on to our confession of hope without wavering for the one who promised is trustworthy. Let us consider one another in order to rouse up love and good works by not forsaking our gathering as is the habit of, by some, but encouraging and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He gives three different commands, three different calls to action as a result of Jesus creating this new way. The first, approach with true, true hearts and full assurance and faith. Come to God believing that God is as good as he says he is. Every day. Every moment. He says, with our hearts having been sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies having been washed with clean water, don't run from God. Run to God. The speed with which you run to God and his people speaks volumes about what you believe concerning the blood of Jesus. Is the blood of Jesus as valuable and as worthy as you say it is? Watch how how you interact with God. Watch how quickly you will come to God. Don't be weighed down by your sin. Second thing he tells us to do, verse 23, let us hold on to our confession of hope without wavering. For the one who promised is trustworthy. So not only do you approach with true hearts and full assurance of faith, you hold on to what you have said you believed without wavering. This is a time in our culture, it's always a time, but it's a time now in particular to hold on. To hold on. Is God going to see me through this moment? Hold on to your confession. The confession of Christ, the exalted one, the the, the king, the priest who is worthy. And then 24, let us consider one another in order to rouse love and good works. So, So I approach the Lord with true heart, a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's my approach. But then not only do I approach, I hold on to my confession. And as I hold on to my confession, I come into with my brothers and my sisters and I arouse them to love and good works. You see the progression here as we move. What I believe about God and how I approach God ultimately affects my ability to rouse my brothers and sisters to good works and how I live and interact with them. And then he also says, primarily, do this by, verse 25, not forsaking our gathering, as is the habit by some, but encouraging and all the more as you see, it, you see the day drawing near. Do not let your sin stop you from coming into the presence of God and his people. The day is coming where Christ will come from heaven to place all things under his feet. Would that we be prepared, 
that we would say, I've stirred my brothers and sisters to love and good works. I believe the blood of Jesus is good enough, is satisfactory enough in God's eyes to make me whole. I, I, I have no need to be complete. Jesus has completed me. That is the voice, I think, of, of shame and guilt. They, they, they call out to us in that way. Now there is a second sound, a voice, if you, if you want to call it that, that I think is just as dangerous or, or deadly. Um, it's the sound of silence. The sound of silence is just as deadly as the voices of guilt and shame. Some of us are like, yeah, I have boldness to come into the presence of God all the time. God loves me, I love God, I live however I want. And I fear for you. I fear, I fear that kind of mindset that says, I live how I please. Because if there is no voice, not necessarily the voice of guilt and shame, but if there's no voice about your life, then, then you also are in a bad situation. You also will probably experience crippling Christianity. And so for this, we turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14 you would say that the same Jesus whose blood was shed on behalf of sins is still very serious about sin. I want to be careful here as we approach this text because what tends to happen when you talk about shame and guilt and the power to overcome it, and then you give a warning, as Hebrews 26 does, verse 26 afterwards, um, is that the ones that should not feel the warning tend to feel the warning, and the ones that uh, should feel the warning tend to be so bold. And, and so if you're one who identifies with the, 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 the weight of your own sin, the shame and the guilt, be very careful with how you, you listen to the, the following, navigating and thinking through those things. But nonetheless, I think Revelation 3 is still both a warning and it's still very, very, very comforting. Um, so, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, This is what the affirmed one, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation is saying. This is what Christ is saying to a church in a place called Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, for this reason, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out from my mouth. And because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have no need, and you do not know that you are miserable and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Laodicea was a, a city that was really vital to kind of that area. There was, a, there was a town underneath it, a couple miles down, and then another. And so it kind of became the middleman of, of prospering merchants and that kind of thing. And one commentator, really interesting, he says, Laodicea is interesting because it flourished in almost every way uh, and yet had no particular distinct, distinguishing features. It had great merchants who had all sorts of um, healing ointments, perfumes, furs, all, this, all sorts of stuff. And it had um, people that, that just prospered in the wealth. In fact, when uh, 
the city was destroyed, the Roman Empire offered to help rebuild their city, and they said, no, we're good, we have enough money to rebuild. And so, super interesting, and the one thing that they don't have is clean water, good water. And so what they did was build an aqueduct, that's a system to travel water, uh, six miles from the south to them, and so they were actually drinking the water of somewhere else. Uh, in the north, they had, I believe, uh, hot springs, which was good for bathing and healing, and in the south, they had the mountainous cold water, which was good for drinking and, and bathing and, and that kind of thing. But in Laodicea, you had lukewarm water, water that was like not good enough to make tea out of, and then not cold enough to really be refreshing. It was nasty. And so with that context, Christ says, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. He's not saying, I wish you were either a believer or not a believer. He's saying, I wish you had a purpose. I wish you, had, you were walking in the, the usefulness that you were called to be. So cold and hot are good things. For this reason, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. The idea there is... I, I've, I've actually not only am currently wealthy, like I've set myself up to prosper. I have no need. This is the kind of person who has no voice or concern about their sin. You are so satisfied with the way life is and you're like, yeah, I'm good. I don't, I don't, there's not a whole lot to me. This is written to a church, to believers. Believers thinking, I'm good, I've prospered, I'm rich, I'm satisfied. And, and Christ is saying, no, 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 you, you actually have a really big problem. You don't see your need. You don't know that you're actually miserable and pitiable. Pitiable meaning you're in a state where one should have pity for you. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And the idea of nakedness, especially for, for Jewish Christians, is this, this idea of a, I, I'm a reproach to all those around me. That, that nakedness is like, the, you know, you think of the story of Noah and his sons and how they had to come in backwards through the tent because he was naked after he was drunk. A little reference for you. Um, he's saying, you, you don't realize your need. You don't realize how much you actually need me. And so we would say, beware both average and self-dependent Christianity. I use the word average because if you live your life just coasting, and you're not really experiencing all the highs that you see other people experiencing or the things they say they're experiencing, beware. Christ has designed the new covenant, new life, new forgiveness in Him to be exciting, to be enjoyable, to be life-giving. Beware average Christianity. Beware self-dependent Christianity. I'm good. I don't need much. I'm satisfied where I am. This is the person that has no voice in their head. I, uh, I'm a self-dependent shopper, if you will. Whenever I go to uh, like a Home Depot or somewhere like that, I'm that guy who will spend like 45 minutes walking around not sure where anything is before I ask somebody. I've actually left places without asking anybody. I was like, I didn't find it. I'm just going to. Uh, that's me. I, I, that's, that's my both introverted and character myself. Uh, I'm self-reliant in that way. And, and 
Christianity is not about self-dependency. The whole thing is really built upon relying upon Jesus. And so we need to recognize our need. But at the same time, in recognizing our need, we, we, we have to identify Jesus as the cure. He says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold purified from fire so that you may be rich and white clothes so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame from your nakedness might not be revealed and to rub an eye salve on your eyes so that you could see. As many as I love, I punish and discipline. Therefore be eager and repent. Behold, I am standing at the door and I'm knocking. If someone hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter with him. I will dine with him and he with me. Not only does Jesus identify our sins, he offers us the cure. He offers to satisfy our needs. He offers us life and hope. If you don't know Jesus here today, maybe you were invited by a friend, maybe you've come a long time, maybe you think you know Jesus. If you recognize, you know what, Kyler, you're right. My Christianity is not all that it's been, I've been claiming it is. It's been me trying to work my way to him. I don't know if I've ever actually experienced the real Jesus. He is not there damning you. He's there identifying your need so that he could help you. He's there offering you today eternal life, rightness with God forever that you could live the rest of your life in the joy and the delight of knowing God. And that when you would die, you would be in His presence and you would be accepted. You would, you would have eternal life in the, the new city of God. You would go on for forever and ever enjoying and delighting with no need of anything. That's the offer that He makes today. He doesn't just call out our sin. He offers to... To, to help us, to, to give us what we very much need. He says in verse 19, if I love, I punish and I discipline. Now, I, I, I use the word punish because it's, the word is a little bit strong, but it's not the idea of damnation. I don't, God, God doesn't damn us if he loves us. That's not how that works. Uh, if he loves us, he chastises us. He, 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 he corrects us. He wants you to become better and better. And he's standing, inviting you. He wants intimacy with you. He's standing at the door so that you can, that you can let him in and he can dine with you. Jesus not only identifies my greatest needs, but supplies them with himself. It ends with uh, verse 21. The one conquering, I will give him a seat with me on my throne, Jesus speaking, as also I have conquered and sat with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I can't even begin to unpack what it means to sit on the throne with Jesus. But think about that. What sort of love says, I do the work for you, now come and enjoy it. Come and enjoy the prestige. Come and enjoy life. It's an invitation for those who hear it. 
God wants us to enjoy him. He does not withhold himself from his children. Do not let guilt and shame weigh you down. But at the same time, watch your your lifestyle. Watch the way you live and see if you're actually experiencing Jesus or you're experiencing satisfaction in other things. God help us to this end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Lord, you know where we all are in different stages and different walks. God, we need you. We need you more than we know and more than we realize. God, do work in our hearts. And oh, Lord, do not let us live average, average lives with you. God, overflow into our hearts the love and joy of your salvation. Free us from the bondage of the shame and guilt. Be our God so that we can be your people. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.